Welcome to this Peer Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including downloadable slides and transcript, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash VXJ. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Novo Nordisk AS. Welcome to this Peer Voice peer to peer panel discussion on stroke risk reduction in individuals with type 2 diabetes. This activity comprises three presentations with Professor Tali Kukamanyatha and Professor Janika Karalidi. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. So welcome to this activity on managing stroke in people with type 2 diabetes. My name is Janika Karalidi from Guy's and St. Thomas's Hospital and King's College London, and I run clinics looking after people with diabetes and complications of diabetes. I'm delighted to have with me in this discussion my colleague Dr. Tali Kukeman-Yafe from the Sheba Medical Center and Tel Aviv University in Israel. Welcome, Tali. Thank you. So all of us are aware that the impact of type 2 diabetes on cardiovascular disease and kidney disease. But it's often forgotten, a bit like Cinderella, that the impact of diabetes is on all blood vessels, including the cerebrovascular system and the brain, and specifically related to the burden of stroke. We appreciate increasingly the impact of diabetes on premature cardiovascular disease, and we often think of myocardial infarction, revascularization for coronary artery disease, heart failure, chronic kidney disease, and the associated burden of cardiovascular disease in people with kidney disease. But what about diabetes as a risk factor for cerebrovascular disease? Tali, would you mind giving us a brief reminder of the importance of diabetes for cerebrovascular disease? What you can see here is the increased risk um, for stroke in people with diabetes that ranges from between 1.5 to 2.3. And you see that this is true for ischemic stroke, for hemorrhagic stroke, and for unclassified uh, uh, stroke. Um, similar and maybe even greater uh, than the effect on uh, coronary uh, artery disease. And, that, and I think uh, all of us, um, many of us appreciate uh, the relationship between blood pressure um, and diabetes. But would you be willing to comment on this interaction between blood pressure, diabetes, and the risk for stroke? Thank you, Tali. So I think we all know how powerful blood pressure is as a risk factor for stroke disease. But what this slide shows is that the presence of diabetes on its own is often a greater risk factor than having hypertension defined as a systolic blood pressure of greater than 160 and a diastolic greater than 94 or the use of antihypertensive therapy. So the presence of diabetes per se, independent of hypertension, adds a huge burden on the incidence of stroke. And if you have hypertension and diabetes, this is deadly. This is the deadly combination of these two risk factors. And as you can see, the combination increases your risk of stroke significantly. So what about the risk of cerebrovascular disease in people with diabetes, Tally, who do not have coronary artery disease, who do not have any other manifestation of ischemic heart disease? Would you like to comment on that, please? 
Yeah, so I, I think I think the interesting thing is that many times when, as, as you were saying before, we think about the coronary artery disease, we think about the microvascular complications, but uh, stroke seems to be many times uh, neglected. And, it's, and I think this study is very interesting because what it did was to look at a cohort of uh, Danish people without coronary artery uh, disease at baseline and looked at their risk uh, for MI, for ischemic stroke um, and all-cause death. And you can see that actually the risk for stroke was the highest. So we're talking about an almost two-fold greater risk uh, for ischemic stroke, different from the risk for myocardial infarction uh, and, uh, and all-cause uh, death. And uh, another study, this one is uh, uh, from England, a large cohort. And you can see in this follow-up of, five, of almost six years, um, that um, almost 18% uh, of individuals with type 2 experienced their CV event. And out of these CV events, uh, stroke uh, uh, was very, very pro- prominent. Just to summarize the first few slides, we see the burden of diabetes significantly increasing the risk of cerebrovascular disease, both the incidence and it's much, much greater, as we said, compared to other conventional risk factors for stroke. But what about outcomes? And similar to what we saw, we see that the presence of diabetes on its own gives you a nearly a threefold increased risk of stroke mortality, much greater than the risk of hypertension on mortality on its own. And again, this devastating, deadly combination of diabetes and hypertension gives you a greater than eightfold increased risk of mortality. And we know it's not just about mortality because in my hospital and in many of your hospitals all over the world, we know that once a patient with diabetes gets a stroke, that they also have much poor prognosis in terms of their recovery, but also spending much, much longer in hospital, spending significantly longer duration of stay as an inpatient complications that uh, I think have recently been recognized as long-term sequels of of diabetes is cognitive dysfunction and dementia and uh, disability. And we know now that people with diabetes and stroke have a greater risk for both dementia and for cognitive dysfunction. We see a similar pattern for disability. So this is a large meta-analysis of about 13,000 patients after after ischemic stroke who underwent mechanical thrombectomy. And again, in this comparison between people uh, with diabetes and people without diabetes, the risk for disability was greater in people uh, with diabetes. Um, So I I think this brings us to this construct of uh, healthy uh, brain aging, which is composed of uh, maintaining cognitive function, prevention of small vessel disease, and prevention um, of large vessel disease in order to prevent these long-term sequels um, of diabetes, of disability, and cognitive dysfunction, and dementia. We talk about healthy hearts and healthy kidneys, and really it's about talking about healthy brains as well and how we can prolong the health of the brain and and prevent damage. What we do know is that we have to have a multifactorial approach to reducing the burden of stroke risk. It's targeting multiple factors, the diabetes control, blood pressure, lipids, smoking cessation, diet and lifestyle, making sure people are on the evidence-based treatments for prevention of cardiovascular as well as cerebrovascular 
disease. And this is a very old study, Steno2, but it's a study that really established the fundamental importance of a multifactorial approach. And remember, this is not just one factor. This is an intervention done in Denmark in people with type 2 diabetes. And it was focused on lifestyle factors, healthy weight, reducing salt intake, reducing alcohol intake, smoking cessation, exercise. It was focused on blood pressure control, improving HbA1c, improving lipid control, using evidence-based therapies at the time. And what it demonstrated over a prolonged period of time, we saw the remarkable benefits for cardiovascular mortality, cardiovascular events, kidney events, but also for cerebrovascular events, we see the long-lasting legacy effect of a multifactorial approach in preventing stroke burden in people with type 2 diabetes. There is a study conducted not only in people with diabetes, but um, 30% of these were diabetes, but it was also a multifactorial study uh, doing exactly what the Steno trial did and, and actually uh, showed uh, a decrease uh, in the rate of cognitive decline. So it seems like the more we do interventions uh, that prevent stroke, the more we are doing things that can maintain brain health um, over time, which is extremely important to an older person uh, with, with diabetes. Thank you so much, Tali. So key messages, remember the burden of diabetes on the incidence the mortality of stroke, but also the cognitive and other long-lasting effects on brain health. So remember the healthy brain, the healthy kidney, and the healthy heart, but please remember the importance of brain health in people with type 2 diabetes. So in our last session, we talked about stroke um, as a complication of diabetes and the importance of understanding the access risk in people with diabetes as the long-term sequels um, of stroke in people with diabetes are far worse than in people without diabetes. And now the question is, what can we do about it? What can we do in order to prevent uh, stroke and the long-term consequences of stroke in people with diabetes? So let's take a closer look at the data on stroke from some of the major cardiovascular outcome studies. So do we have evidence to guide us in managing stroke in people with diabetes? Janneke, would you like to comment on that? It's, and the simple answer is yes, we do have evidence. Uh, and that's really important because we all want to practice evidence-based medicine. And we do have evidence to help us manage the stroke risk in people with diabetes. Um, and we know that diabetes as, it, as a risk factor is so powerful, as you said, for both the incidence, but also the consequences of stroke um, in people with diabetes. So what we have here is a brief summary from a really excellent review um, um, this year, a call to neurologists about the importance of GLP-1s and other interventions in people with diabetes on the burden of stroke. And what we can see here is that we have many evidence-based therapies for um, stroke intervention. So if we talk about glucagon-like peptide or GLP-1, this is a, a amino acid peptide secreted by the gut. But remember, even though it's secreted by the gut, it has multitude of effects all over the body. So these drugs have been available for diabetes treatments for many, many years and are pretty much recommended as part of the standard treatment for type 2 diabetes for a large number of people um, with type 2 diabetes. 
A key message about GLP-1 is remember that the GLP-1 receptor is present on many, many cells in many, many organs all over the body. We are very familiar with the effects on weight, on HbA1c reduction, on effects on blood pressure and other factors in the cardiovascular system, but you may be less familiar with the effects on neuroprotection and the effects of GLP-1, which is expressed in the brain and the central nervous system. And this fascinating review that I described earlier highlights the putative potential neuroprotective effects of GLP-1 receptor agonist treatments in terms of protecting the key cells in the brain directly and indirectly through anti-inflammatory processes, reducing glycation, reducing oxidative stress, promoting cell growth and reducing cell death or, or apoptosis. But in parallel, we have effects on the atherosclerotic system, on the vasculature. We know the effects on weight, HbA1c and blood pressure, but you may be less familiar with the effects on improving endothelial function, reducing vascular smooth muscle activation and the consequences, the adverse consequences of that, reducing vascular inflammation as well as local inflammation. And all of these effects can translate to potential neuroprotection because remember that GLP-1 crosses the blood-brain barrier, so it can have direct effects on the central nervous system. So I've described the potential mechanisms that GLP-1s can provide neuroprotection or central nervous system protection to the key cells that may translate to benefits in reducing the burden of stroke. But what about the clinical evidence from clinical trials? Tally, would you like to share the data we have from clinical trials and meta-analyses on the role of GLP-1s on the management of stroke in people with type 2 diabetes? Yeah, so thank you for that question. So in the last several years, there have been uh, several uh, randomized controlled trials uh, looking at the effect of GLP receptor agonists on the MACE outcome, with stroke uh, being one of the uh, prominent um, uh, outcomes in, in this, um, in, in this uh, composite. If we uh, zoom down and look at the reduction in the risk of stroke, you see a 17% reduction um, in uh, the risk uh, for stroke. And there have been several other meta-analyses that have shown similar results. Again, zooming in on the risk of stroke, and we did, it didn't matter which type of GLP they used, different population. It seems like the GLP has a uniform effect on the reduction in stroke in people uh, with diabetes. So now let's zoom in on one of the trials. So this is from uh, this is an exploratory analysis from the Rewind trial that tested the effect of dulaglutide. Uh, versus a uh, standard of care. And you can see um, the homogeneous reduction both in non-fatal stroke, a fatal stroke, and disabling stroke. And we can see um, a similar um, uh, pattern um, in the sustained trial. We tested the effect of uh, semaglutide uh, versus um, standard of care with a prominent reduction in the risk of stroke in a high cardiovascular risk population. 
And I think this is a very interesting uh, figure. This is data from the SUSTAIN and the Pioneer um, uh, trials, both testing the effect of semaglutide. One is the injectable, one is the oral. And you can see that across, uh, 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 across the spectrum um, of uh, previous cardiovascular risks, uh, the GLP receptor agonists reduce the risk of stroke. So it doesn't matter. What this means is it doesn't matter what your previous risk of stroke is. Uh, the GLP receptor agonists uh, will have uh, will have an effect. Of course, the effect will be more um, prominent in the case that your risk is higher. But in it, with any with any uh, in, in in any degree of risk, uh, the GLP receptor agonists will have a, a positive effect in the reduction of stroke. Um, and Janica, I, I wanted to ask you: Is this something that we see for all of the diabetes pharmacological agents, or this is something that is uh, unique to the GLP receptor agonists? So thank you, Tali. I think um, it is unique to GLP-1 receptor agonists. Um, SGLT2 inhibitors, we are all very familiar with these drugs. Um, and and we, we have seen the data for heart failure and kidney outcomes, which are really remarkable for this class. But if you look at stroke specifically, um, SGLT2 inhibitors don't do as well. Uh, and as you can see here, um, there is no really strong evidence that there is a specific beneficial effect on stroke. But obviously, we are aware of the effects on other uh, major adverse cardiovascular events, heart failure and kidney disease. But for stroke, GLP-1s have much, much greater evidence, as you very nicely demonstrated in the previous slides, with very, very few other diabetes drugs that we have. Um, Tally, um, we briefly discussed the concept not just of kind of stroke, but also the kind of cognitive and other kind of potential neuroprotective effects. And let's speculate, I guess, and, and think ahead. Uh, um, would you be able to kind of describe some of the potential hypothesis data suggesting benefits of GLP-1 on other um, cognitive and other neurological function um, and disease? So there's actually uh, some data, uh, both um, uh, from uh, the Rewind trial, testing the effect of dulaglutide, and also from post-hoc uh, analysis of the liraglutide, semaglutide, uh, cardiovascular outcome uh, trials, uh, that suggest uh, that these agents might have a role in uh, uh, prevention of cognitive uh, dysfunction in this high-risk population. As, as you well know, that people with diabetes have a 1.5 to two-fold greater risk for cognitive dysfunction and, um, and diabetes. So I think this is very exciting uh, uh, because they might have a potential uh, uh, for slowing the rate of cognitive de decline um, in this population. And I think it goes very well and very nicely with the construct that we did uh, um, talked about before of uh, healthy brain aging. And, and as stroke prevention is an important part of that, it, there is a lot of logic in, in, in these drugs um, having um, an, an effect in prevention of cognitive decline and cognitive dysfunction. So... To summarize here, um, uh, I think we've seen the data for GLP-1 receptor agonists, um, specifically the data for stroke reduction, uh, both fatal and non-fatal stroke. Um, we've seen the clinical evidence um, that really puts GLP-1 receptor agonists right at 
you know, right at the top in terms of diabetes therapies, offering um, cerebrovascular neuroprotection in terms of stroke reduction. We discussed briefly the very the potential exciting mechanisms related to neuroprotection, um, prolonging the health of uh, cells in the cerebral vascular system, uh, but also reducing the burden of vascular dysfunction, vascular inflammation, uh, and atherosclerosis, which obviously is really important in terms of potential mechanisms to reduce the burden of stroke that were observed with GLP-1s. And really, I think it's about us thinking about using these therapies, as we will discuss in our next session, really choosing the right people with diabetes, but also remembering the burden of stroke and their need for early intervention. Because um, as you heard, there's um, considerable evidence, growing evidence for the key role of GLP-1 receptor agonists for stroke prevention. So thank you very much for your attention. So welcome back. In the previous um, um, sections, we talked about the evidence and there is a lot of evidence for the role of GLP-1 receptor agonists for stroke prevention. But what's really important is how do we translate this to real life, to clinical practice, which is you know, what we're all doing every day in our clinics all over the world. And there are many guidelines, but we're trying to give you a brief summary of the key guidelines. And Tally, do recent guidelines provide some direction to guide us in terms of stroke prevention in people with type 2 diabetes, focusing specifically on anti-diabetic therapies? Yes, so um, here you see the recent uh, EASD, ADA uh, guidelines. Uh, and um, we start off, um, as before, on, um, on comprehensive uh, lifestyle modification and metformin. And then we have to uh, see if the patient is at high cardiovascular uh, risk, in which case uh, we would be thinking about a GLP receptor agonist with proven cardiovascular benefit or an SGLT2 with proven uh, cardiovascular uh, benefit. And if the person has heart failure, we would be thinking about an SGLT2. Um, the European Society of Cardiology provides similar guidelines. They do not talk about metformin as a first-line therapy, um, and uh, but talk about uh, um, um, after reducing um, LDL uh, about uh, GLP receptor agonists and um, SGLT2. And I think what's really fascinating, Tali, is that all these guidelines suggest the role of GLP-1 receptor agonists or SGLT2 um, inhibitors for organ protection independent of HbA1c, isn't it? And that's really a sea change in the way we approach the care of people with diabetes. Um, what we do know, I guess, is, you know, in, in the real world, we have patients who are on lots of therapies for their diabetes. And it's important to think about the background therapy and how we can ensure that the patient gets the evidence-based treatment to prevent um, cardiovascular and cerebrovascular disease. Please remember that atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease includes the burden of cerebrovascular disease, and it's not just about myocardial infarctions. Remember the risk of stroke. So if we have someone who's got type 2 diabetes, who's had a previous stroke or transient ischemic attack or TIA, or who's at very high risk for stroke, which the majority of people with diabetes are, if they are 
on a DPP-4 inhibitor and we are going to add a GLP-1 receptor agonist, we have to stop the DPP-4 inhibitor. Please remember, we would be considering the GLP-1 receptor agonist for cardiovascular and cerebrovascular protection independent of baseline HbA1c. And we will go into a bit more detail with the clinical cases about some of the other practical aspects. But if the person is on sulfonylurea or insulin, we are worried about the consequences of hypoglycemia driven by the sulfonylurea and insulin. And often in real life and in practice, we have to talk about the burden of hypoglycemia, but also reduce the dose of sulfonylureas and insulin in many situations, especially if the baseline HbA1c is below 8%. So we've heard about the guidelines and the importance of using evidence-based therapies and how we need to work together with our primary care colleagues, our neurology colleagues, our cardiology colleagues, and our endocrine and diabetes colleagues to really focus on reducing stroke, both prevention as well as preventing secondary events in people who have already had a prior cerebrovascular or transient ischemic attack. So I'd like to present a case and then we'll have a few more cases to go through. Um, this is Sandra. Um, she has type 2 diabetes for four years. She's 53. She also has hypertension. So remember those slides we talked about, the presence of hypertension and diabetes significantly increases the burden of stroke. She has a well-controlled blood pressure with a blood pressure of 130 over 75. Her lipids are well controlled. With However, her HbA1c is suboptimal um, at 8.5% and has remained like this for the last few years. And she's uh, overweight with a BMI of 32.3 um, and has preserved renal function. And she's currently on metformin as well as antihypertensive and lipid lowering therapy. Um, so, Janika, th this is, I think, one of the classical diabetes uh, patients. And so when a patient like that enters your clinic, what, what are your goals of treatment for that, um, for that patient? Is it about um, A1C? Is it about reducing complications? What, what are the important um, things you think about? So when we have someone like Sandra Tally, you know, she's young, and we need to think of the consequences of diabetes. She has a family history of stroke. She saw her father have a devastating stroke and that's left a long lasting impression. We need to think, at least my approach is about how can we improve and maintain the quality of life of our patients? And really it's about preventing complications. Of course, we need to reduce the HbA1c, but we need to use evidence-based therapies that also target her risk of future cardiovascular disease and in my view she's at high risk of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease because of her family history, her comorbid hypertension, her obesity and her type 2 diabetes. So what is there a specific drug that you would um, start here uh, in, the, in her case? So in her case um, she's very keen to have benefits for glucose and weight but also reduce her future risk of stroke. And in this situation, I would start a GLP-1 receptor agonist. Often a weekly injection is what's preferred, at least in London, um, for many of our patients. And do you have any uh, tips regarding uh, what to tell her, how to start treatment? 
So I think it's really important to have these conversations early uh, with any therapy uh, for diabetes or for any therapy for any other condition, explaining the potential adverse events and how to mitigate or reduce the, uh, the risk of adverse events. So we start with a lower dose and then up titrate the dose gradually. We give advice to patients about watching out for side effects, but also how to minimize side effects, making sure that the meal portions are small, making sure that they don't have excess heavy lipid um, meals, which are full of fat. Talk about understanding the importance of these drugs in reducing appetite and getting fullness, so to avoid overeating and to think about smaller meals and to really be aware that these drugs over time will result in significant improvements in weight loss and uh, glucose control, but also the long-term potential benefits for cardiovascular and cerebrovascular disease. I just want to say in that context so regarding the GI effects, uh, my experience is that one of the important things to tell patients is that, the, that even if you have GI effects, they usually uh, over time subside. So uh, it's worthwhile, if, if they're not severe, to stick to it and, and, and slowly they will pass. And I think that's one of the things that I have found that has helped patients really uh, pass through the GI effects if they have them. So we're going to move on to Lucy. Um, Tali, um, a, a, another really interesting case. Would you like to describe the case in brief? Yes, yeah. So um, Lucy is an 80-year-old woman uh, with ischemic heart disease, hypertension, dyslipidemia, atrial fibrillation, and uh, cerebrovascular disease, which is known since 1998 already, with left hemiparesis, several uh, uh, um, cerebrovascular accidents with decreasing uh, functional capacity, and also has small vessel disease going, if you remember that nice, healthy aging, uh, healthy brain aging uh, concept. So she has both large vessel disease and small vessel disease, and that has left her with a functional impairment, uh, but with intact um, cognitive uh, function. Um, she has long-standing uh, uh, diabetes and um, with an A1C ranging from 8 to 8. Uh, 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 ranging from 8 to 8.8, .8, and the cur her current A1C is um, 8.5. Uh, and you can see here that she's treated with a basal insulin and with a sulfonyl uh, urea. So with her, um, with her case, um, she's frail, um, I understand, um, uh, and um, we need to have good treatments, but also think of how good the treatments are in terms of safety, but also preventing long-term events and obviously preventing her from having further stroke, which would be devastating to her and the family. Uh, what, how would you manage her case, um, uh, Tally, in terms of the next steps? Uh, so she's on a sulfonylurea and insulin, um, uh, but would you add another therapy um, specifically and what would that be and what would be your goals? Yeah, so I think I think Lucy's case is a wonderful case because it brings forward uh, the challenge uh, that we have when treating older people with diabetes, and there's great heterogeneity 
in older age. And, and uh, uh, the standards of care of the ADA and many other guidelines uh, um, um, recommend actually treating according to the health status of the older person uh, with diabetes. So there's a three um, uh, categorization scheme suggested by many professional organizations. And I think Lucy fits into the unhealthy uh, category. And, and thus there is a change in, in the uh, glucose, lipid, uh, blood, uh, blood pressure target. Having said that, we, I think one of the important things is to think about safety here and prevention of hypoglycemia in a frail individual where a fall can be a devastating, um, a devastating event. But we must also think about, as you said before, about prevention of the long-term complications that may be the devastating event that can be a life-changing event in her, um, in her case. So an another stroke can be that, um, that event. So I think in that aspect, the GLP receptor agonist is a, is a wonderful therapy because it, it provides us um, uh, uh, a safe agent uh, um, and, and, and uh, the benefit of uh, prevention of, of, the, of the next stroke. And the other aspect, I think, to also take into consideration in frail individuals, and it will be very interesting to hear about your experience um, in London, is this aspect of treatment. Who actually uh, provides the treatment to the, um, to the individual? So this is a, a frail individual with some disability having uh, difficulties treating herself, so she needs um, aid um, from, um, from her daughter in this case. Uh, and, and, and here, the, the, the fact that you can give the drug once weekly is a very big, uh, a very, very big advantage. No, thank you, Tali. And I think uh, very much um, similar to what you said, we need to be also pragmatic or practical, but also remember what we're trying to achieve in terms of preventing another stroke. So I would also advocate a, a weekly GLP-1. And having a weekly injection really makes a difference in terms of either a family member or a healthcare professional being able to attend and improve the overall health of the care, but also in a practical sense in resource stretched um, healthcare systems, a once weekly injectable therapy is often um, much easier to deliver, but also most importantly, it's a therapy that prevents long-term uh, cardiovascular and cerebrovascular events, which she's at very high risk of. Thank you so much, Tali, for, for your help and for contributing towards the cases. And we've seen cases where we are focusing on primary prevention. So always remember what are we trying to achieve and are we using the evidence-based therapies? And this um, uh, program of work is really focusing on the burden of stroke and the key evidence that GLP-1 receptor agonists have benefits uh, for stroke reduction, both primary prevention, but also secondary prevention uh, in people who have had previous events. Um, we need to do a lot about education of our patients, explaining uh, the potential side effects and the, in, the need to persist with therapies that give key benefits. Um, Tali, um, any other key take-home messages um, from these cases that you've described? It is important to highlight this aspect, this, this construct of, of healthy uh, brain aging and, and that, that, that um, a lot of what we're doing today uh, will determine how our brain will age in a successful way. And, um, and I think that's something that we should be thinking about and focusing on uh, generally. And in, in that aspect, I think the GLP provides us with a wonderful um, new uh, tool. 
Thank you so much, Tali, and thank you everyone for listening to this session. Really um, hope that it was useful and educational and to remind you of the high burden of stroke in people with type 2 diabetes and the evidence base for the use of GLP-1 receptor agonists early to prevent the significant complications of cardiovascular and cerebrovascular disease in people with type 2 diabetes. This has been an activity published by Peer Voice.